Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pole Position. You are listening to episode number four with Joshua Zimmerman. If you need to find out who this gentleman is, head back to episode number one because you should be starting from episode number one. Anyway, hi Josh, how are you doing? Great, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to this. We are finishing on number four. We promised listeners, we said we're going to do it into two-parter. On the second part, we said we're going to do a three-parter. And on the third parter, we said we're going to do a four-parter. I am not complaining. And I'm assuming the listeners are neither. Anyway, where do we leave off? We left off at the 1920s Polish-Bolshevik War. What we're going to do, we're going to move on from that because in 1920, lots of things are happening. I mean, Poland is coming back into its own. But Piłsudski has actually bestowed the title of Marshal. So tell us how, why, and what does this mean for him? Because only six years down the line, Poland is going to be thrown into more turmoil with a coup led by Piłsudski himself. So let's start with this Marshal and then head six years down the line. So Marshal of Poland is a title bestowed on him that has enormous symbolism because the last marshal of Poland was General Tadeusz Kościuszko in 1794. So this it 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 creates this bridge between the last major uh, leader of Poland who tried to restore full sovereignty in 1794 1795, uh, and that sovereignty was lost, and that of course, ended uh, the state history of Poland in 1795. So to have this bestowed upon the new leader of independent Poland, who is commander in chief, is, is, is really extraordinary. And it's the title of first marshal of Poland, of independent Poland. So it's a very unique title that can't be bestowed upon any subsequent uh, military commander. 
talk us through this uh, this whole thing because you know he becomes marshal. What happens then? I mean, is he still in power? What is he doing at this yes. point? So he so he's still in power. We're we're in the um, end of nineteen twenty, beginning of nineteen twenty one, and it really is in the life of of Pilsudski, who who is referred to as Marshal Pilsudski, and perhaps we should dwell for a moment on this term because in Poland today it's Marszałek Pilsudski and. And no one has to say Pilsudski. It's just Marszałek. And everyone in Poland knows, oh, Pilsudski. And I just find that extraordinary. Um, I think if I remember one of the biographies I went through, because I did a whole study of the literature on Pilsudski, and I think listeners should know that this tells us how important Pilsudski is, that in 2004, someone wrote a book just on the literature on Pilsudski documenting it from beginning up till 2005. Uh, and one of those biographies was just called Pierwszy Marszałek, meaning nobody needed to, in Poland, needed to have it Pilsudski. They knew who who, who was being referred to. So it, I just think it has profound symbolism as kind of the, as the, the father of the nation, the protector of, of the people, and this, this kind of extraordinary well of of trust that I believe the the vast majority of Poles um, had. And when I say Poles, I mean people inhabiting the lands of uh, historic Poland or where that border was drawn. I don't mean just ethnic Poles, but this sense that that his um, that he had transcended party politics, because we should remember that he was no longer a member of the Polish Socialist Party because he felt that as leader of the nation, he had to be leader of all and he couldn't represent a party. So he's someone really who acted in the best interest of the country. And um, I actually begin the introduction with two um, two quotations. And one is from his, you know, uh, the most important biographer of Piłsudski in the communist period, uh, who is um, um, who wrote in 1988, uh, uh, the kind of definitive um, biography of Pilsudski. It was a very critical one, actually. And um, but I call it a transition book between the old communist uh, hardliners who refer to Pilsudski as a dictator and fascist and as an enemy of progress um, um, to this last biography, which which put him in a really proper historical place by saying actually he wasn't a dictator, uh, but he was um, authoritarian. And in that quotation that I placed there, uh, Garlitsky, what's is the name of the um, um, historian, you know, made the case that Pilsudski had a kind of arrogance to him, thinking that he and only he knew what was the best, what was the best interest of, of the nation. Um, you know, that was a kind of opinion he had of, of, of the author, but, um, but Pilsudski was perceived that way, that, that his understanding of what is the best interest of the nation re- really was, you know, he really did have that grounding in, in working um, without self-aggrandizement, without self-enrichment, and this is part of um, his legacy. You know, I'm interested in this coup. I mean, how does this come about? Because I love, by the way, your thought on Pilsudski because I also completely and utterly agree with you. And I know I'm going to get hanged for this. I don't care. Because there's some people that are like, yes, he was a dictator. But coming back to this initial thought, 
how why, why is there a coup what is happening where is poland at this time that is a great question um and i think it's it's kind of at the core of understanding about Piłsudski. and i think it's interesting to kind of zoom out a little bit and say from the point of view of the english speaking world when does Piłsudski enter the the narrative of european history sometimes he's not there um at all so for example when i was in graduate school there was a textbook we were all required by uh, palmer and colton called the history of the modern world beautifully written and i was uh, and it takes the story you know right up to um you know it's it's first edition in the 1950s and goes through eight editions but i was struck later at the time i didn't think about it uh, but i was struck later that pilsudski doesn't appear in that book even though poland does but but that but later general textbooks on European history, Piłsudski did appear, but when did he appear? Uh, either once or twice. So once that he was head of the new Poland in 1918, and then the second time maybe just a mention of the 1926 coup. And those are the only two times often that he's mentioned. Um, often even the 1920 war is uh, skipped or speaking about uh, general histories. So, because of that, I feel like the coup is not particularly well understood. You know, what is it? It's usually portrayed, you know, as this ex extra legal military action by Pilsudski to take over power, but with but it's it's discussed in a vacuum without understanding why. So this is the way I would explain it uh, to listeners. In um, 1922, in December, we had the first presidential elections in Poland, and it brought uh, to power uh, Gabriel Narutowicz. And five days later, he was assassinated by a kind of deranged extreme right individual who claimed that he had assassinated Narutowicz for Poland and that he did it, he had to as a Pole. And he was a martyr. He sacrificed himself for the good of Poland. Why? Because the argument was that there are you know, one third of Poland at that time uh, was were minorities, and that Narutowicz really what tipped the balance was the minority vote. So what this individual claimed, and and also it was the claim of the the right wing media press at the time. It was called the doctrine of the Polish majority that if only ethnic Poles were allowed to vote, then their guy, the right-wing candidate, would have won, right? It's a supremely anti-democratic and uh, illiberal idea, right? And it also had this, this ring of contemporary uh, American um, life, which is the January 6th, uh, you know, insurrection and all these claims leading up, you know, after the presidential election of November 2020, that in this county and this county and in this county, all where there were minorities, uh, those votes should be thrown out. They weren't, they weren't valid. It's the idea that, you know, that our guy should be president. And if, if not, then we will intimidate and even use violence um, to challenge and contest uh, the elections. But the assassination itself, what it brought out is one, there was a vicious press campaign in the five days following the election results, in which they said, Narutovich is illegitimate, that there was widespread fraud that was unproven, and that he he cannot be accepted as the as the candidate, and they 
had you know the most famous headline in the in the main uh, daily press of the National Democratic Party was the day after the election uh, was Narutovich president of the Jews, right? So can I just I just have to throw this in that embittered Pilsudski so much, and I. Do you know what? I'm, I'm not to bring modern day politics. I, I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. But if you look at how things have changed over the years, this is this just repeats itself. We don't like you. What we're going to do is we're going to throw loads of fraudulent claims at you. And that's how we're going to get you out of office. And it's just absolutely, absolutely. It, it's just crazy. Do you, where does the truth lie in any of this? Does it? Is it here? Is it there? Where is it? Oh. No, you're absolutely right. We should remember that that before the November 2020 election, then President Trump was very clear. If I lose, then the election is rigged. That's what he told us. So, and the claims of fraud were months and months in advance. <laughs> this is before the votes even were tallied. Is they were fraudulent. So, in other words, it's it's a massive disinformation campaign to kind of you know, throw the country into disarray. Well, could it be? Could it be? Well, if you make the claim enough times, people may start. Uh, but this, w- what happened here is not only that the first president of, of independent Poland was assassinated, but it's what happened at the trial, which is, is one month later, um, the assassin was put on trial. He was uh, found guilty and he was executed. And his tri- the transcripts of the trial, which he was allowed to speak and explain why he assassinated Narutovich, were then printed in the, in the right-wing uh, press the, the following day. And apparently what happened is, is a lot of the um, party members uh, really you know, agreed with a lot of things that were, were, were said, uh, and, um, and that after the uh, um, after the execution, uh, police reports showed that there were Polish families in certain parts of the country who had photographs of the assassin with the words martyr of the nation. Um, and this embittered Pilsudski so much that I believe he came to the conclusion that this is not the Poland I spent my whole life fighting for, where there's free and fair elections. And and even if, and, and that the outcome uh, is is if it's not what people uh, you know wanted, that they will actually um, try to delegitimize it and overthrow that elected you know president because it's not the guy that they wanted. He came to the conclusion that the polls weren't ready yet for democracy, and that he would never allow the um, the the leaders of the right wing parties, mainly the National Democrats, who had spearheaded the um, uh, the vicious campaign against the president and call them illegitimate. I think he vowed that he would never let them run the government. So he was clear on that because he made speeches to that effect. So it just so the listeners understand, Pilsudski became embittered and he left government briefly uh, in 1923, and he he moved permanently to his country home in Sulejuvek, and he of course remained part in some ways of of political life, but he was. He was resigned, and he he would observe what was going on. and um, And if we move the clock uh, forward, several things happened that concerned him. Because remember, Pilsudski always had his eye on the big picture. He never kept his eye off of the the security of Poland, the long term safety uh, in terms of the buildup of arms of its big neighbors. Because remember, he had a task. I think 
uh, totally unique to Poland, which is the curse of geography as a country lying between Germany and Soviet Russia, right? The two countries that invaded and dismembered Poland just 123 years before, right? There's no like clean hands here about these countries and their intentions and what, what you know, the historical, the, the, the bitter historical legacy. So he knew that Poland had to be secure and that that security rested in, in, in many ways on its alliance with France, which had, according to the principles of the, excuse me, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, guaranteed Poland's borders along with Great Britain. And, and for listeners, uh, I think it's important to know that in 1921, Pilsudski's first foreign visit after the cessation of hostilities uh, with, with Russia, so in peacetime, uh, was to France. And he signed a military and political alliance in 1921. And that, in the literature, is claimed to be the most, perhaps most important diplomatic achievement in the interwar period. Uh, an alliance with France in which, you know, they, an open alliance saying we will protect the borders of each other's country in the case of aggression um, by a neighbor. Now, um, so not to go too long on this, but in 1925, there's something called the Treaty of Locarno. And this is the beginning of Pilsudski's deepening concern about the security of Poland. And that is a, an agreement between Weimar Germany, France, and Belgium, in which Germany for the first time formally recognized the borders of, of France and Belgium as permanent. So in other words, it was an admission. We no longer contest the borders. Alsace-Lorraine is permanently part of France. The area of Belgium that was ceded to them, permanently part of Belgium. We no longer uh, contest that, but they refused uh, the request of the Poles and the Czechoslovaks to have uh, uh, embedded and inserted in that agreement the same recognition for the Eastern frontiers and Germany refused. Now, the fact that France um, um, went ahead and signed the agreement without imposing on Germany, because remember Germany was demilitarized, suggested to Pilsudski that the French now are are indeed, not in word, but indeed saying, you know what, those borders are a little bit open for conversation, which is something that deeply concerned him. And I have a quote in which um, the foreign minister of Poland, when he returned to, to Warsaw, because he, he actually was in Locarno trying to convince them, he told the French ambassador to Warsaw that Locarno is a stab in the back uh, in the alliance between our two countries. That's the way he uh, articulated that because it was an admission that that border is contested and you know we can have conversations about it and Pilsudski was clear there are no conversations about the border with Germany it's permanent and will never be changed we'll never give up one inch of land and 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 secondly you know he's his, his message to the West European democracies is don't dare you negotiate on our behalf any 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 uh, a land you know so that was one thing. Um, and then in the in 1926, in April, Weimar Germany and Soviet Russia signed an actual um, uh, alliance, a kind of agreement, a, an accord that had a military component. It was the first such agreement between Soviet Russia and Germany. Now, this is, I want listeners to think about this, this was April 1926. 
from Pilsudski's point of view, this was this was not good. You know, where the two neighbors have this military alliance, because the alliance said that if if one country attacks a third party, the other will not intervene. It is the the worst possible kind of agreement from Pilsudski's point of view, because his in his mind it means you know if if Germany attacks Poland, Soviet Russia's agreed it's not going to intervene. So he's thinking in long term like. So what is the health of Poland? And it just so turned out that in April 1926, there was a financial crisis. There was a massive def uh, uh, deflation of the zloty. And so it had, it was at the time, 10 zloty to $1. But in the matter of like 12 days, it went to 17 zloty to the dollar. That's a huge def uh devaluation of currency that is huge and it is to this day if even if it went to 17 now that's that's yeah. horrific right I don't can think you imagine any, it's yeah. horrible absolutely so people were one is there was a financial crisis this is and the the, the you know the minister of the economics minister was not able to to kind of respond in a proper way but one of the ways he did respond was to like cut pensions in half and the, the, the what happened is uh, hold the on Polish i'm sorry he did what so he 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 said something like, "We're going to uh, cut pensions temporarily through the year 1926, so we can restore our budget." Because right now the budget just declined in in a major way because the zwoty just uh, devaluated so dramatically that they he admitted we're not going to be able to to put out our our you know um, our pension payments and and so there were protests and apparently. Something yeah, two like, rights, two rights. There yeah. were protests. I mean, imagine Absolutely. being the retired people for that year, going, "Oh well, sorry, we're going to get half our pension." Right. I mean, it's extra. It, this finance minister, that was his his solution. So people came out and in you know and were striking and in protest. And then there were because of this, there were rapid changes of government. So on May tenth, um, nineteen twenty six, uh, the government. I'm sorry, on May 8th or 9th, the government fell and President Wojciechowski named a new government on May 10th uh, with Vitos, Vincente Vitos, who is the head of the of the uh, peasant party, um, was named prime minister and he established a cabinet. And this is the immediate background to the coup on May 10th, because he established for the first time an all right government, including members of the of the National Democratic Party and some more minor right-wing parties who had been part of the smear campaign against Narutovich in December 1922. And just to remind listeners, what Pilsudski had vowed is that he will, that his red line is he'll never allow a government to form that's exclusively of parties that, in his view, uh, were in some ways responsible for the assassination of Narutovich because of the of this smear campaign against him, claiming he was Ill, illegitimate, that there was false claims of fraud and all this. And so he, I believe, had a major fear. One, which is that Poland was in a time of deterioration, you know, the the um, collapse of the of the of the currency, um, the Treaty of Locarno, in which the security of Poland was in question. And then having this German-Soviet um, uh, military accord all together made him believe that he needed to step in, that Poland was deteriorating and that a new right-wing government 
was had just come in that he believed was a threat to democracy. So ironically, he enacts the coup in an extra legal fashion and illegally, right? Because it's absolutely not a legal act, right? Because he he then gathered an armed force and on the 12th of May, he enters Warsaw. Now, why do we know that he believed fully that when he approached the president, who was his old comrade, and he was going to demand that the government be dissolved, that the, the president would concede. Why do we know that? Because according to the memoirs of his wife, when he left that morning, he talked to her about what they're gonna what he's gonna have for lunch. So he asked, when I come back at for lunch, which apparently had lunch every day at two, he he talked about what meal he would he would like. So it it is an indication that he believed he was leaving around seven in the morning. He would enact the change in government. He would he he went with an armed force, and the president would concede, and he'd come back for lunch. I love that. So I think, <laughs> I I love think that. it tells us what he thought about that the president would. And of course, we're talking about an individual outside government who walks, who who approaches the east bank of the Vista with these fanatic supporters of his. Um, on the other side is President Wojciechowski with pro-government forces, and they meet on the bridge and Pilsudski delivers to him an ultimatum. You need to dissolve this government. It's a disaster for Poland. The, the, the economy is in a downward spiral. These are right wing um, uh, members of the of kind of the government of, of the parliament that are really illiberal and undemocratic. And they're going to put us down this road in which Poland's going to go into kind of form of decay and make us much more vulnerable to our neighbors. That was his fear that, in fact, that chaos would invite aggression from from the neighbors. And so I think that's where his mindset was, which was uh, protect the sovereignty of of the nation that was his instinct so is this successful is the coup successful does he take over the government and have a change yes so he is successful um readers should know that president Wojciechowski um said no uh this is a <laughs> legally formed government uh which is by the way that's how the constitution mandated a government is formed because the previous government had just fallen and remember it had only been in power for about like two and a half months so there was this chaos in Poland. I mean, can we imagine, we should, the readers should know that this was the 14th government since 1919. So it's 1926. So imagine that in seven years, there's been, this is the 14th government because governments were falling very quickly because of the economic crisis, um, that the, there'd be a no confidence vote or the, um, you know, the, the prime minister would resign and then the president would have to name a new government. So this is there are a lot of new governments right now, but this last one is what Pilsudski objected to most because of not necessarily vetoes, who had already formed several governments, uh, center center left governments or um, center right, but with members of the left um, and also with Pilsudski on it. It was it was this particular timing of a all right government. Um, so I just want to say that so Wojciech. Jerkowski actually fought for the preservation of the constitutional system. And there were three days of battle uh, in Warsaw, where literally you had Polish on Polish blood being spilled, in which we believe that um, 200 Polish soldiers total on both sides were killed, and that close to a thousand civilians were injured 
uh, in, in that three days of civil strife and conflict. And at the end, the president resigned and the prime minister resigned and Pilsudski formed a, a new government, putting in Kazimierz Bartel as prime minister and forming a new government. So this was huge, this coup d'etat. It was reported all over the world. I, I went through the diff various presses to see. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, to kind of gauge how this was being viewed at the time. And I'm, it was surprising to me to see how positive the evaluation was from the American press. So like I show that Time magazine put Pilsudski on the cover after this. Um, it's like being on the cover of Vogue, really. Isn't oh, it? absolutely. It was Pilsudski. And, and if you read this article, it's saying that in a way he, res he restored um, law and order. And the, the one thing he did is the, the economy restored after his, his coup uh, in a huge way. So the Zuoti was stabilized and there were rises of real income. So, so the economy did better, but in the initial aftermath, there was a fairly positive evaluation. And I think part of it is because he takes power and just like on in November, 1918, he could have gone any direction, right? Because now he had absolute power in his hand, but he named Kazimierz Bartel as prime minister. Uh, a cabinet was formed. He retained the constitution. And I think this is extraordinary. He retained it exactly as is a constitution that he had bitter opposition to because it made the executive branch impotent. He it entirely backed the democratic parts of it, which is it gave full freedoms, full equality before the law to all citizens without regard to religion, sex. Remember, Poland was the fourth country in the Western world to give women the, the right to vote long before United States, long before Britain, France. And that was all because Pilsudski insisted so he was in, in favor of those, but the part of the balance of power, which, which made, gave all power to the parliament and made the executive branch a little bit like um, a, 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 the British monarch today, which is no real power, but it was a, you know, you represented the nation, um, but it didn't have uh, real, you know, real power. So there was an, he, he opposed that. But I think it's important to note that he could have just ordered that it be uh, tampered with or that we rewrite the, but no, he believed that the only way you can change a constitution is through um, a, a parliament um, approving any changes. So he actually had a process move forward, which is constitutional reform, but he remembered because he preserved the constitution, he preserved the parliament with opposition parties with legal opposition presses. He allowed you know, vigorous debate and vigorous criticism of him. Um, because of that, um, he was not able to actually enact the constitutional reforms. But I think it's interesting that when you think of like, you know, authoritarian governments today, like Orban of Hungary, 
he doesn't say let's 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 take a vote by a democratically elected you know parliament and and let's let them you know consider whether or not my changes to the constitution should go through you know he just tampers and changes the constitution right and and undermines the independent judiciary and all that but Pilsudski, I believe, had respect for those institutions, and it shows that the Constitution wasn't actually changed till one month before he passed away in April 1935. Uh, but he could have done anything. He could have established a full dictatorship, but he chose uh, to preserve that. All of this coups and changing of government and Pilsudski coming back for lunch because that for me is probably the most uh, amusing thing out of all of this mm-hmm. and expecting that everything is literally going to be done in a few hours screams a little bit like possibly a dictator. And I know a lot of people have stated, you know, Piłsudski was this evil, horrible dictator. What do you think about this? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In my view, Piłsudski was not a dictator. He became an authoritarian leader. And we should remember that the dictators of his time, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, they entered already existing democratic governments with the intention of toppling the democracies. Pilsudski, on the other hand, was literally the creator of the democratic system in Poland. And so the idea that he would re-enter government uh, in 20. 1926 to topple the democratic system that he himself created really really isn't uh isn't factual he actually believed himself that he entered to save the democracy that this particular right-wing government was moving down a path that would betray the democratic spirit and institutions and democratic law of poland and also remember that he um, preserved the constitution, like I had said before, and allowed opposition parties to function legally uh, with opposition papers. And so the idea, and so the fact that he allowed a multi-party system to continue under under his um, rule for the next nine years shows that his form of government was not dictatorial but authoritarian. Because it is true that he, from 1926 on called the shots that we when we think of the non-party block for the support of government which was the coalition in 1928 that was established 
that for the first, you know, that he needed to get a majority in parliament so he could get things done. Um, from that point on, um, he's ensuring a system of government where the parliamentary majority uh, is with him. But we should say that the base for that was not any lust for power. The base for that, in my view, was his his wish to get things done in Poland. And remember that the Polish parliamentary system was so fragmented. It ha- it allowed so many political parties um, and there was it, it was so unstable um, and there had been so many changes in government that nothing really could get done because a, a government would start a project and four months later it would fall. Uh, and then opposition would would, you know, unfortunately, in a way, do everything they could to block legislation to bring down a government. So he, for the first time, was able to achieve uh, a, a block in government that he formed in 1928 that could get a majority in the parliament so he could actually get things done. And, and if you do look at that, there were concrete improvements in the lives of, of citizens because the economy improved. So I think that that was you know his, his legacy is that is that he pres- he did preserve that constitutional democratic system but he becomes authoritarian and it's not clear what would have followed um had had he lived beyond 1935 and presided over the new constitution passed in April and which was ironically made with him in mind as the executive but because he passed away less than a month after it was passed his successors now were were at the helm of that, and they were not as competent as as he was. We could probably talk about the next question for a whole podcast in itself. Mm-hmm. So I have to keep it short and sweet, however much I'd love to talk about it forever. But we're going to talk about mm-hmm. foreign affairs. And you have a very interesting um, incident or happening or thing, or whatever word you want to use, with uh, Goebbels who was obviously the Minister of Propaganda for Germany in, gosh, my history has gone out the window, 1930-something, uh-huh. uh, probably 33, 33. Let's yeah. go 33. So yeah. any of my any of my Third Reich historians want to come and correct me, please mm-hmm. come for me. Come for me now. <laughs> anyway, talk to us about this Goebbels thing and his uh, interesting approach to foreign affairs, because mm-hmm. uh, this is a good one, ladies and gentlemen. It's yeah. a good one. Well, thank you. I think this is emblematic of of Pilsudski's, you know, um, his own personal principles uh, and what he envisioned for Poland. And that is, there's a contrast between his authoritarian style of rule and a foreign policy that never changed from the moment he took power in 1918, which was to solidify and, and strengthen Poland's ties with the Western democracies. Right. And so part of the way you can judge a ruler is who he or she um, rubs shoulders with. Right. Um, if they uh, if they if they establish warm ties with a uh, democratic leaders or authoritarian leaders or dictators. Right. So this is why this is so important. So Pilsudski has enacted the coup in 1926. Um, there's more of an authoritarian style of rule. And in 1933, we have a cataclysm uh, in Europe, which is which is the rise of the Nazi Party and Hitler. And now, 
Pilsudski has new challenges. And one of them is how does he deal with, you know, this with Nazi Germany, which is a neighbor and they have a, 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 you know, their propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels and Pilsudski in general will not agree to meet with any leaders of, of dictators. Um, sorry, without any, um, he will not agree to, to uh, meet with, with dictators. So he never meets with Stalin. He never meets with Hitler. He never meets with Mussolini. This was based on principle. Uh, he, he hated these peoples. He hated that style of rule. Um, but uh, in the, let's say, two years from the uh, birth of, the, of Nazi Germany till Pilsudski's death, there is one Nazi leader he, he agreed to meet with, and that's Joseph Goebbels. But what's so uh, revealing is the circumstances of this meeting. And that is that in 1934, Joseph Goebbels, on a private invitation from a group of Polish students, uh, uh, does come to Poland, and he, he asks for a formal meeting with Pilsudski. And Pilsudski uh, replied by not replying. Then Goebbels enters the country, and it's only 24 hours after he's in Poland that he replies and agrees to a brief 30-minute meeting with Goebbels, kind of under the radar. Uh, and um, it's a very disappointing reception for Goebbels. Goebbels wanted a kind of red carpet wel welcome. But what's extraordinary is, is the contrast between the way Pilsudski treated Goebbels, which in a way he snubbed him and kind of only reluctantly agreed to a meeting, um, is that is that shortly after he received the foreign minister of of France, um, and there that foreign minister, whose last name was Bartow, um, you know, commented on that very day that he had never been received with such warmth from any other state leader in his whole history as a diplomat, uh, and I think that tells you a lot that who did Pilsudski really desire to have strong relationships with. Definitely not the propaganda minister of Nazi Germany, but the foreign minister of France, um, he would welcome with open arms. And it was a very important meeting because it was the first meeting, the first, um, the first official visit of a French foreign minister since 1918. In other words, it had never happened yet. So the very symbolism was profound that the French foreign minister made an official state visit to Pilsudski in uh, April 1934. So we're speaking about, um, you know, about roughly a year before Pilsudski passed away. But I think that's very um, important, um, the contrast between the meeting with Goebbels. And I cite in my book uh, a British newspaper reporting on the first, uh, on the Goebbels meeting, in which it basically says that this could not have been a more disappointing experience for the German propaganda minister than what actually took place, that it was a brief meeting, it was under the radar. The fact that Pilsudski waited uh, to even respond to the request, you know, showed that he was very uneasy. There is a photograph of Pilsudski and Goebbels um, at that meeting. And I, I dwelled on that photograph because if you, if you really examine the expression on Pilsudski's face, you know, Goebbels is all smiles and Pilsudski looks so uncomfortable. 
that he's even standing next to the jerk Nazi propaganda minister. Wouldn't you be uncomfortable standing next to Goebbels? Yeah. <laughs> that's a great, you know what, that's a, <laughs> that's a great comment. Um, I think I would be. I would be like, yeah. oh, dear God, I'm standing next to this horrific alien looking little man. Yeah, <laughs> it's you're so right about that. But doesn't it tell you a lot? You know, I just think when there's a stereotype of Pilsudski as a as a well as a dictator, well, dictators love other dictators, right? So it's not this is not the case at all because as I argue, Pilsudski wasn't a dictator, but his whole life he you know he fought for the very opposite of what Nazi Germany represented. So he detested and hated. And by the way, I should. Tell listeners that um, that there were several times where Chancellor Hitler made direct requests for meetings with Pilsudski, and Pilsudski always refused. He would never be seen, nor would he agree to meet with uh, with Hitler. And I think that again, that's important. Hitler admired Pilsudski, I believe, more than any statesman uh, in Europe. Because he thought he was a strong leader and uh, very decisive, I think. You know, actually, let's stick to this because uh, this is actually going to be my one of my next questions. Well, it's a little question down the down the line. We can backtrack in a second. It's not a problem. But sure. because you said that Hitler admired Piłsudski, I'm really interested in knowing your opinion that if Piłsudski was still alive in 1939, do you think that Hitler would have gone for Poland? I do think that the history of Europe would have been markedly different if Pilsudski had not passed away in May 1935. Because if we we remember, Pilsudski believed in his foreign policy that responding to aggressors, to authoritarian states like Soviet Russia and Germany, had to be done first with force and then with diplomacy. But diplomacy was led by force. So I want to give listeners this example that Pilsudski adamantly opposed the German reoccupation of the Rhineland. It's something that happened after he passed away. But I believe that Pilsudski would have responded in a very, very different way than uh, his successors. Um, and he would have put Europe on notice. So let me just give this example that in the in 1930-1931, when sympathy for German revisionism was growing among the Western democracies, among the French, among the British, and even among some American politicians, for example, one prominent senator in the United States voiced in, in 1930 uh, the view that the future of peace in Europe uh would be markedly improved if Poland just gave up the corridor. So that was that was one thing. So you had both a French prime minister who voiced the same opinion to Polish diplomats that he believed that the Polish the Poles should give up the the corridor and Danzig for the future of peace in 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 Europe. The fear was that is that there would be a permanent state of hostility uh, in Europe unless Poland gives up the corridor to Germany. Uh, and Pilsudski went on record making it absolutely clear that there will be no land for peace. There will be no uh, concessions made 
uh, by Poland and that there absolutely should not be any concessions made behind Poland's back. So I would give this one example that when, for example, it became clear that the, the new uh, French prime minister, his name is Pierre Laval, was actually sympathetic to German revisionist claims. And that president was in October 1931 planning a trip to Washington, D.C. Piłsudski wrote a letter to the United States president, Herbert Hoover. So the letter basically said this, that he believes that German um, troops may at any time uh, violate Polish sovereignty. This is what he said. And then and then he and then I'm going to just quote from the letter. If this should occur, the whole Polish army would be immediately mobilized and marched into Germany to settle the thing once and for all. And they would not be influenced by any actions of the League of Nations or anybody else. Unquote. So he was going on notice to the U.S. president that I'm aware that the new French prime minister has voiced sympathy towards German revisionism and the German claim that they they should get some territory back from Poland. And Pilsudski went on record saying, yeah, that's never going to happen, right? So, and then uh, in June 1932, Pilsudski responded to growing German revisionism within the Weimar Republic. And we, we, we should remember that there was not a single um, chancellor of the Weimar Democratic German Republic that recognized the the frontier with Poland, right? Not a, not a single one. So it's not just Hitler comes to power and there's a there's a uh, German campaign to to get land back from Poland. And so at that point, Pilsudski again does a show of force. For example, in June 1932, he ordered a Polish Navy vessel to enter the harbor of Danzig just as a show of you know, Polish force to put people on notice that Poland will not be giving back land uh, for any reason whatsoever. We will defend every inch of land. And he did that to lots of criticism uh, in the West, because that was an international harbor in which Polish uh, force, Pol the Polish Navy was not supposed to enter or German Navy. And then we just move the clock up a little bit. Uh, Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany on January 30th, 1933. Uh, and then Literally just 12 days or 13 days later, he gives this famous interview uh, to a, a, a British newspaper. And that newspaper uh, is the Sunday, uh, the Sunday Express, in which Hitler says, and I'm quoting, another hideous injustice to Germany is, of course, the Polish corridor. The present position is hateful to all Germans the Polish corridor must be restored to us, unquote. So Hitler gives this interview in a British newspaper and Pilsudski responds, and I think this is really significant, by once again ordering a naval um, uh, vessel to enter the Danzig Harbor off of Westerplatz or Westerplatz in again, a show of force. So his response to Hitler was to mobilize troops to the to the uh, Western frontier, mobilize the Navy, then start speaking about uh, Polish sovereignty. And then in, that, in, in the month that followed, March 1933, Pilsudski spread a rumor that Poland was planning an invasion of Germany, uh, perhaps a preventative war 
with France to remove Hitler from power. Now, this is a controversial case, the so-called Voina Preventina, or preventative war. And the controversy in the literature is, did he actually send a secret envoy to Paris and actually present to the French government a preventative war? And some scholars say that that um, proposal was never physically um, presented to the French, and there are no documents uh, in the French archives to support the view that it was presented. What we do know, and what I document in the book, is that the rumor that Pilsudski was planning an invasion of Germany to remove Hitler from power was very much present in the diplomatic exchanges going on in March, April, and May of 1933. In other words, British diplomats were aware of it, French, German, and, and Hitler responded by becoming very conciliatory and and reaching out to the Polish government for a peace accord, a kind of non-aggression pact. So so it's the it's through the threat of force that made Hitler blink for the first and really only time. Um and that's because he respected Pilsudski, who made it clear that force will be used. And and that's without question if if our sovereignty is ever if there's any attempt, uh, you know, to violate our sovereignty. Now, and I say this because the critical thing is that after Pilsudski died, the first German uh, revision of the Treaty of Versailles, it came in May 1936 when Germany remilitarized the Rhineland. And for listeners, the Rhineland was a was an unoccupied zone uh, de decreed by the Treaty of Versailles that says there'd be an unoccupied Western region of Germany um, so that there's a buffer between Germany and France in case there's another German invasion. So Germany reoccupied the Rhineland and the French and British responded diplomatically condemning it, but did not respond militarily uh, to prevent um, Germany from reoccupying the Rhineland. We do know from documents that Hitler ordered his generals that if there is a French military response to this military action, then you will withdraw immediately. But the French, not a single French troop crossed into um, Germany to, to defend the, the, the Rhineland, which was by international law supposed to be demilitarized. So um, what we do know is that, you know, at that time, Foreign Minister Beck had a kind of ambivalent or, you know, dualistic um, uh, um, response in which he essentially assured the Germans that he would not um, um, he would not openly oppose it, but but at the same time he reached out to the French and said that if 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 you are um, interested in a military response, we will come on board with you. So it's unclear about Polish response, but what we do know is that Pilsudski immediately understood uh, that the reoccupation of the Rhineland was going to be a disaster for Poland because it. It was a diff it re it recalibrated the balance of power, um, and and you know if listeners just think about what happens later the the uh, German annexation of Austria in March 1938, uh, the German um, annexation of Western Czechoslovakia in September 1938, then the complete dismemberment of Czechoslovakia to no response um, from military response from the Western democracies. Now this is something that. Pilsudski, I believe, would not have tolerated. So if we think of the Pilsudski who was moving troops to the West and um, ordering a 
Polish Navy to enter the, the harbor of Danzig just in response to an interview that Hitler gave to a British newspaper. It's just in response to words. Imagine what he would have done if if German if Germany you know moved into the Rhineland. Uh, he would understand the implication for Poland, and I believe he would have either responded militarily or he would have encouraged um, the Western democracies to do so. From the Treaty of Locarno of 1925, when Germany refused to recognize the border with Poland and Czechoslovakia, Germany began calling for the removal of, of Western troops from the Rhineland and the right of Germany to re reoccupy the Rhineland. And Pilsudski, from the very beginning, absolutely opposed the German remilitarization of the Rhineland, and he believed it would be a disaster for the for the future of Europe. And it seems like this was emblematic of Pilsudski. He was a visionary where he saw the broad implications in a small change in the balance of power, and he would he would intervene to stop that because he understood what this could mean for the future of Europe. What's really interesting is that before we started recording, we were actually talking about a tweet that went out yesterday by a friend of uh, journalist friend of mine, James Jackson, and he quoted uh, one of Pilsudski's quotes about Russia. So bringing this to something a little bit more modern that our listeners can actually kind of relate to, talk us through what Pilsudski's understanding of Russia was. Well, thank you for that question. And that tweet you mentioned, it quotes... Uh, page 339 of my book, in which Pilsudski uh, in 1919 is interviewed by a French daily newspaper because he's in the middle of, or the midst of negotiations with Bolshevik Russia uh, over territory between them. And there's a question of where that demarcation line will be and whether or not Russia really wants peace. Because at the time, Russia was putting out peace kind of feelers that it wanted peace with Poland. And, and Pilsudski's response was extraordinary, which is, and I'll just quote this. He says, he says, we cannot believe anything Russia promises. For Russia promises when it is forced to do so, and then goes back on its word from the moment its strength is renewed, unquote. And I thought that was very relevant for today, because he may have put his finger on something that is beyond kind of time and place about Russian political culture, which is that he said that he added that, quote, Russia is fiercely imperialistic. One could even say it is the fundamental feature of its political character, unquote. This is Pilsudski responding. And I think probably today it, with the tragic Russian um, you know, invasion of Ukraine and Russian war crimes day in, day out, all sorts of calls for, you know, peace talks, negotiations. It seems to be almost like understood in the West that negotiations won't resolve anything with Russia, that, that there now seems to be an understanding of like what Pilsudski said, which is that if Russia is ready for negotiations, that means it's at this moment uh, needs a pause so they can uh, they can actually strengthen his troops and then mount a uh, counter mountain offensive right that nobody seems to have any trust uh for 
at least the current Russian government and what it's doing. And so I think that insight into Russian political um, culture is pretty profound uh, and it has such a reverberation today. Joshua, we have spent four absolutely amazing episodes together. And I'm really gutted that we have to end this because I would happily have you back on to even delve into something a little bit deeper about Pusotsky, or we can work on any of your other multiple books through all absolutely fantastically written. So make sure you do head out and buy Josh's books. So Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing all these issues with you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.